Hello and welcome back to the podcast newly name, renamed and rebranded as New, New Rainbow Cast with Artistically R. The podcast sees me exploring with guests a wide range of topics under the brands of neurodivergency, disability and other intersectional issues and identities that come under the umbrella, exploring neurodivergency in the colour. And as I said, this is the New Rainbow podcast from the New Rainbow Project. This episode, however, let's get into it, get ready to get into the main interview, is with Holly Spreakill. Holly Spreakill is an occupational therapist and this interview will hear me talking to her about her experiences as being multiple neurodivergent, having dyslexia, dyspraxia, ADHD and autism. And we'll also talk about her being a parent to autistic and neurodivergent children as well as a career as an occupational therapist and somebody who gives training on occupational therapy to other people in other professions and working with like people in professions of teaching to doctors and making speeches and developing content that can be used to give information on how to give neurodivergent affirming occupational skills and making things accessible for neurodivergent people. This kind of carries on from some of the work we've been doing on recent episodes as you may remember the second interview with Rachel Winder where we discussed on the topic of uh, her idea about having a statutory regulator that regulates uh, UK services that provide interventions for autistic people. As he said, this is quite an important thing to do in terms of ensuring that people are not traumatised and continue to be traumatised by systemic failings and systemic issues, as we hinted on in that interview, about how it can impact mental health. And something that mental health has for interviews, whoever it was, gives to Sarah Jean Harvey, to Kayra... Uh, the other week, uh, we had uh, right discussions on mental health and the whole importance of advocating for neurodivergent affirming support. Uh, as that what uh, Rachel Binder wanted to encourage people to do, uh, and you know, uh, be able to find the right support that works for autistic and neurodivergent people. You can get our episode with uh, Rachel Rinder part two by looking at the New Rainbow Cast podcast feed that you are listening to the podcast for this. And also, you can find out more about that episode on New Rainbow at www.newrainbowproject.com and on all social media channels associated with the project. Then the other week we also had a guest talking about uh, career and speech and language therapy 
which is referenced in this interview, who provides the service of speech and language therapy that is also new divergent affirming. So hopefully in the coming weeks and months on the podcast, I can explore more issues relating to autism intervention services and the issues that are within the system of providing support and support for the world divergent and autistic people where say that from the health sector to social support to wherever it's education and exploring some of the more political issues with it and the sociological issues with it and the what uh, things you want me to focus on in these areas you can also let me know or by getting in touch using at New Rainbow Project on Instagram, Facebook and TikTok. You can also find the New Rainbow Project on Twitter at New Rainbow UK and then you can email New Rainbow at New Rainbow Project dot com if you got any questions, ideas for community episodes even and anything that you would like us, like me to talk about and any feedback from this. And so let's get into the episode of Holly Sprakehill. My name's Holly Sprakehill. I'm a wearer of many hats. So I'm a children's occupational therapist. That's my professional background. I'm an autistic person. I have ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia. I am a parent of young people with additional needs. I am an advocate for autism and neurodivergence in across social media, but particularly face-to-face in my local area. and do a lot of work doing that in my local area. Yeah, it seems like a lot of those things kind of overlap into, thing, into what, you know, you do well, so you say, you know, like occupational therapy, and I guess having been neurodivergent yourself and having neurodivergent children, I guess that has helped you influence you into that field of occupational therapy and maybe has helped you empathise and understand how to do that, especially with specialising with children's occupational therapy and actually involved in social media advocacy in the area of neurodivergence. Yeah, definitely. It's taken me a long time to get to this point, though. Or it's not, it wasn't something that just happened. I've been practising as an occupational therapist for 15 years this year, and I am a late-diagnosed autistic person and a late-diagnosed ADHDer. And since my own young people have had their experiences, it has completely changed my practice and completely changed the way I work, how I approach families, how I talk to people. Um, And I can honestly say uh, it's been for the better. Talking about, you know, like your diagnosis and as you said, of ADHD and autism, you were late diagnosed. So was it your first diagnosed with like dyslexia and dyspraxia, your first diagnosis? And give me like a big off, like when you got diagnosed as to when you started or, uh, doing occupational therapy and started being interested in that work field. My first degree was uh, in something completely unrelated. I sort of struggled on through that. But like a lot of neurodivergent people, you get told, 
oh, do you know, you could just be so good if you just did this or if you applied yourself more or if you could just put more attention in and more work in or do this, do that. And it always seemed massively unachievable because of the things that I was being asked to do. Just I just couldn't do them. I just wasn't able to put in more effort. I was exhausted. And I still came out with a really good degree of my first degree. But then I worked for a few years as a mental health worker in a community adult mental health team. And I was looking around at the various roles in that team. And I met an occupational therapist and I realised that that actually it was that very nature of occupation. So being able to do the things that are really important to you that, that are so empowering and bring you so much satisfaction in your life and can simultaneously be so dysregulating because the things that you don't want to do or that you have to do can be really pushing you into a place that you resist that and um, all those things that your body just isn't able to do. And you were saying that in like university when you were doing your first degree, it was something a bit of a struggle and challenge for yourself. I assume probably with like being autistic and diagnosed then and having ADHD, like there was this sensorial social aspects that can be quite a challenge then. And with a dyslexia and dyspraxia, then some of the academic struggles and now to plan your work and, you know, manage your time and manage getting into different you know, lessons and things such like that. Was you diagnosed when you were at university? Or no, some... I man- managed to miss it again the second time. <laughs> I went to go and do my training uh, in occupational therapy, which was a, another degree course. And my dyslexia got picked up, but not autism and ADHD, but as we all know, it doesn't matter whether you've got a diagnosis or not, it's still in there. It's still part of who you are. I often smile to myself when people explain how they experience their autism and ADHD as like two sort of opposing forces pulling them in different directions. And for me, study um, especially is just like that because my my hyper-focus, my special interest is occupation, occupational therapy and autism now. But at that point, it was learning more about my course. It was all the things that I had to learn. I was just, I loved it. But I had the organisational skills of a drunk squirrel that had been on a roundabout for 20 minutes and been thrown off. I just could not organise myself. So I did find that extremely challenging, despite having all the reasonable adjustments that I was getting for my dyslexia. It still wasn't enough because it didn't take into account my autism and it didn't take into account my ADHD needs because we just weren't aware of it at that point. From like deciding that after working as in the field of mental health and then, you know, like seeing an occupational therapist in that field and then you thought at something that it would mind me like training up to do and, you know, going back to university and getting qualifications to do that. From working in that field and starting out by thinking, right, when I have a try at being an occupational therapist, I guess that has helped you to get your dyspraxia diagnosis and I guess in the long term that gets engaging in that field then led on to the ADHD and autism diagnosis just within like 
periods of time, you know, being in that space. It's interesting you should say that because I'm not sure it's because I was an occupational therapist. I think it was because of the journey that I've been on through my children's diagnosis, through going around the issues they've experienced in education, trying to support them through education. It's It was that that led me to realise my own different categories of neurodivergence and that's because I think I was had a really internalized view of, of ableism in terms of what an autistic person presented as um, what an ADHD present, person presented as um, and that was all based on my old school training from 16 years ago that you know with the best will in the world was based on medical models it was based on stereotypes it was not based on hearing the voices of autistic people and the people who experience ADHD in a non-typical, non-textbook manner. So when I really opened my eyes to the voices of, of the community, it was then that I was like, oh, right, actually, I just need to stop thinking about it in this little tiny box because that's not how it is at all. So it seems like even with having been in that you know, field of working in mental health or occupational therapy that when you had young children and then if it were like the aspect of your family and your own children again picked up and diagnosed from teachers in your children's school, I assume, that probably like the people around your children as well as maybe yourself started to pick up notice of traits within themselves that get led to them, you getting a diagnosis or considering that you might be autistic and have an ADHD. It's been absolutely pivotal in the way that I changed my practice because if I hadn't have experienced what I have as a parent, then I would still be perpetuating those myths perpetuating that practice although if you follow me on social media you will see that in my like in my twitter bio it says i'm professional marmite because people either are very passionate about what i follow or they absolutely hate it and find it's very threatening and what i say i am very vocal about things that i see as poor practice and ableist practice and, and challenging social injustice and disability injustice but similarly i will also call out really good practice when I see it. it doesn't have to be perfect but when people are really trying to change their yeah. practice that is just as important because we can shout about terrible ableist institutions as much as we like but unless we take the people who are showing a willing to learn and nurture that little flame and say do you know what I know that you're doing the best you can, so let's see how we can make it even better. And thank goodness the community gave me that option because I could have been written off as that ableist therapist and never changed my practice. But I now I have definitely seen that there is so much more and you can get such better outcomes for people when you respect their neurodivergence. Like the thing that when it's people working with neurodivergent people, people, disabled people, it's the important thing that no practice will be like perfect and it's important to recognise that and I guess the important thing is of like recognising good practices when they like when people are able to listen learn and actually listen from 
the people I work with and cooperate with them to understand their needs rather than projecting on what you think that their needs or interests are. And that's, I guess, the big difference of what can make good and bad experience. You're saying about how you were late diagnosed and even like years within the occupational therapy field of being the occupational therapist and, you know, doing that for some years before your own diagnosis and possibly from like before your own kid's diagnosis. So do they feel to only get that understanding of your own diagnosis and learn that thing out about yourself later on, even being within such fields. Do, do you know, it actually, it gave me a bit of, um, it's like somebody wiped the fog off the mirror because first of all, it was a bit cross that none of my colleagues saw it in me or mentioned it to me, even though I have a history of, of finding certain um, social situations and certain workplace situations um, very difficult to tolerate and difficult to um, sustain. Um, but instead of anybody saying, Holly, you thought you might be autistic or Holly, you thought you might be ADHD, I experienced a lot of stigma in those workplaces um, and often internalised all the failings on myself rather than the lack of reasonable adjustments. But what I realised from that is that my colleagues don't see it either or didn't see it at that point. So it wasn't that they were withholding that information it's just that is that is the institutional view of what somebody who is a health professional who is also neurodivergent, they, you know, oh, they can't be autistic, oh, they can't have ADHD, or oh, they're just not trying hard enough. Those ableist stereotypes are so ingrained in professionals. We don't see it in each other unless we open our eyes to see it in each other because yeah. we have all these expectations. It's and was- so cultural. And as you were saying that, it's something, I guess, now that you want to be able to, as motivated you in your field of work that you're doing, to be able to have discovered and now understand that you are neurodivergent in multiple ways. And the fact that you not know, even like people in the call, your colleagues and people in the space you work with are work with neurodivergent people. I guess it helped you to think that there's a lot more that needs to be understood and more of it needed and I guess something that made you think need to be able to talk about this learn about it myself so can help other people in this field of work that you do yeah I mean sometimes it's whether they want to hear about it or not which uh, I think is definitely an autistic um, characteristic isn't it sometimes you just need to info dump people but especially when it's to do with something that is personally very very important because it involves the not only the well-being of your family and the well-being of your Self, but has such huge mental health and um, outcome, quality of life outcomes for, for neurodivergent people. It's like when I sit with other health professionals and my peers and I hear them talk about disorders, deficits, people as if they are a selection of criteria rather than the passionate, compassionate, amazing neurodivergent, particularly autistic people that they are. You know, I'm like, you need to, to just reframe your thinking here 
and just remember that this person's values, this person's interests are just as valid as yours. It's just a different set of interests. We don't need to fix them. We need yeah. to help them in the way that they're requesting help. I said, I guess it's like one of those things, as I said, if people aren't willing to listen and learn and don't actually take take upon such things, that I guess it does make it harder and a challenge in your field of work. And I guess some of the made some of the things a lot difficult in your field and that like guess things got come along in more way and I guess that just that difference from other people within the wider place of work or you know the sector you work in I guess that's why sometimes online you were said you perceived as a bit man right is it yeah 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 and not just online really um I uh you know when I've been advocating for my own children's needs in meetings it's very clear that uh some professionals don't want to hear rhetorics around uh, challenging their practice um, but you know that that is about a power dynamic isn't it and people don't yeah. like their power being challenged um, and I think this this is where wearing a hat as a parent carer and as a professional and as a neurodivergent person it, it is messy because those blur, those lines blur but also it gives me an opportunity to, to yes be emotional about it but be emotional from a very good reason yeah you know and, I, I, yeah yes. sorry go on no no finish off you are saying <laughs> no it just so um so yeah if I, if I see that practice I now feel extremely passionate about calling it out because it's not it's not just somebody else's child that it's going to affect it's not somebody else's family who's just a name on your case it, it's people I know it's people I love and it should never take that it should never ever take that but when it does take that and when it does hit you in the face and actually I'm sure you'll understand this neurodivergent people flock together because we we want safety from each other and we often find each other so when people come to me for assistance it's it's usually people I know or people I know from the community and when I see these cases of injustice, when I see them being treated in a subhuman way, it's very difficult to to not take it personally because these are my kin, these are my neuro kin. And as you're saying about that and like talking about some of the like positive and negative experiences that, as you say, that you might be found from people who were referred to your services and, you know, like children and parents work with to your own experiences of a parent. So what what are the vaguely other experiences of being a parent have you noticed from like guess good on or as well as being occupational therapist, like good and bad experiences or interventions for disabled and neurodivergent people? Oh <laughs> So um, I suppose, interestingly, I have moved away from exposing my kids to therapies because I don't think that they're necessarily the right thing um, for my family. I'm not saying that's right for everybody's family, um, but from my perspective as an occupational therapist, I, I think there's, there's a, a preconception that children's occupational therapists working in autism services only focus on sensory and that is absolutely not the case with me um and it's not the case in terms of how i would view somebody's um situation when they come to me because as as ot's we're tra we're trained to teach to see people holistically 
and not holistically in a sort of hippy dippy way as in to see that whole person in the context of their life and there is nothing more important for an autistic person than the context of their life you know i think luke bearden nails it with autistic person plus environment equals outcome you don't get that environment right for that person they are not going to thrive and as ot's that is exactly what we should be looking at and i never saw a therapeutic you know as in set of appointments that my children would go to that would be suitable to encourage um, a thriving environment what i wanted was practitioners to pull together to truly understand what an autistic person needed in their environment and actually an ot to support that rather than somebody doing some therapy to them yeah as a parent and if you feel you can answer this what are the things that when you were like going with your children's therapies or the therapies you tried to you went along with and was your children was referred to or like can you tell me a bit about those therapies and like what were the aspects that you know didn't at least work for your family or that you felt that may be a bit I guess problematic or could be improved upon if you can answer that. I think um, mental health services were just never tailored towards our needs. And that has always been a real difficulty. Um, it's almost like being um, allergic to an ingredient like, say, fish and going to a fish restaurant and somebody going, what do you mean? You're not going to eat anything here. Um, that's that's really awkward. Why why won't you eat the fish here? And you say, oh well, the fish is really damaging for me. I can't. It, you know, it's going to hurt me. And you know, if if it was something physical like that, I think practitioners would understand. But when yeah. you when your brain perceives the world in a very different way because you're autistic and ADHD, and somebody says to you, here is a mental health strategy that um, is going to teach you to disregard all the things in your brain that are telling you that this thing is dangerous. So for example, busy places or sensory input that is distressing to you. And you've got to try and teach yourself to ignore all those signals. It makes absolutely no sense for that autistic person. Or if you are really struggling with verbal communication and the, being able to verbally communicate in a to and fro conversational tennis whilst understanding your own emotions and expressing those emotions is incredibly difficult for you like for a lot of young people yeah. with internalized presentations um, of autism offering them talking therapies is like the worst thing ever but then th again that if you've not got the right therapy if you've not got the right thing on the menu that's not the end of the world but then if you turn that around and make it that young person's fault for not being able to access that that is when it becomes extremely problematic and when you turn around and say it's the parents fault for them not being able to access it or for them being too picky or too, too obstinate then it's an issue as like so i guess it's more the point that you found the mental health services your children were referred to were, weren't like designed for neurodivergent and autistic people as it's the thing that mental health issues are in autistic people whether that's like depression and anxiety or like some like eating issues to like many other different things to like having treatment that all the conditions, OCD, 
that might overlap in some autistic people. And some of it is down to like vivid sensory anxieties or to a whole different experience of what people are exposed to being autistic and what are the challenges of being autistic in a neurotypical or holistic world. And so I guess it's those struggles of the uh, therapist not understanding autism and I guess how to tailor the communication to an autistic person from children who are autistic like probably found maybe myself when I was younger doing stuff stuff like that you know it's that I guess lexophemia sometimes and it's that ability to like find ways of communicating how you're feeling and feel quite safe and comfortable to do so as it's a thing that communication can take a lot more work and time for an autistic person. So I guess it was that kind of stuff that made things quite a challenge for your autistic children and something, I guess, you felt that wasn't working for them. Yeah, and I think, you know, when when you look at how we are taught as children and young people to understand our feelings and to verbalise our feelings and some of the um, emotional and mental health strategies that have gone into schools over the last few years, they are all tailored towards neurotypical ways of thinking and ways of expressing yourself. You know, they're all focused on talking, time to talk, do this talking, let's talk about our feelings. They're all talking about mindfulness, you know, this immediate assumption that, that that will be therapeutic for you to talking about getting outside and getting some fresh air when a lot of these things for autistic children who are in crisis can be so massively overwhelming and if you're being bombarded with these messages of this is what is going to fix you this is what is going to sort your mental health out this is what's going to make you feel better and be more normal and you know you can't go outside that easily because it's so bright it hurts your pupils you can't cope with the noise of conflicting sounds of outside because it's just too overwhelming or you can't cope with wearing outdoor clothes to go outside or you're absolutely petrified of somebody seeing you because they might talk to you and then you'll have to make small talk these are all issues that are just sort of washed over by these generic mental health strategies that are put into yeah. place in schools so as, as our autistic and ADHD children start oh, and that's the other thing quiet your mind you try quieting your mind when you've got yeah. ADHD you're already onto a loser because how can you do these health promotion activities when your brain just does not work like that yeah and that's what I mean about an enabling environment it's not just the bricks and mortar around you it's what are you being taught in your curriculum what are the messages that you're getting from the societal education yeah. and public health strategies do they meet your needs as an autistic person yeah probably not i guess it's something of like typical mainstream education system that is kind of like focuses on a mainstream rather than having a universal accessible education as they focus more on in neurotypical population of the educational system and it's something that education from young age could be done in a much better way that allows young people whether they're holistic or autistic neurodivergent or neurotypical to understand what different ways of like feeling and expressing emotions are if like from young age I learned a bit more about you know, like the most sensory differences of being autistic, maybe for my own diagnosis. 
I think that would have such an impact, you know, if, as you say, that, you know, some of it can be a bit too bright and loud and, you know, for the senses and then for, you know, an artistic person. And in terms of mindfulness, that can be a thing, kind of finding a, a quiet environment, like suited to our, our needs for us to be able to, to switch off, you know, relax, you know, be energized, and just, you know, like if, like if you find spaces too overwhelming, and plus to be able to, like, kind of, as I said, from the lexifying the area, then it's that being, you know, educated on like the different way of feelings, emotions, and reading, and like how other people, you know, are expressing emotions, because as you say with the like very autistic and ADHD and you say that sometimes start to set the mind off, especially if you read trying to work out other people's emotions because sometimes you think and some people might be angry with you and not knowing what for and all that, you know, like that like social difference that can impact an autistic person's mental health from young age. And I guess it's that thing that could be improved from like a schooling point, I guess, or like a young pers- person's life. I mean, imagine if when like, I mean, I don't, I, you look much younger than I am, but starting school, if you're identified as autistic, ADHD, dyspraxic, whatever your divergency is from early on, and somebody, instead of going, oh, I can't believe you're so rubbish at PE because you're dyspraxic, you know, why can't, you know, you just need to try hard. Can you just get dressed quicker in the changing rooms? Instead of barking on at you, somebody says, oh, yeah, do you, do you know what? We're going to, would you like a bit more time? Not forcing it on you but actually empowering you as a young person to understand your own needs just as you know people who don't have these levels of neurodivergency get and for you to feel okay about that and not ashamed into it and not blamed about it and I do wonder whether we would spend so much time being anxious as autistic people if we weren't so worried about all the things that we had to be anxious about because we are spinning those plates all the time, like controlling our sensory environments, controlling our executive function, making sure our tone of voice is right, making sure we've masked adequately so that people don't get upset that day, making sure we've fed ourselves, fed other people, done all the things we have to do, blah, 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 blah. You know, but also done those within the parameters that our autistic brain wants us and needs us to do. Yeah, as you said, said, that would be be something quite beneficial and for others to understand if you're like the the neurodivergent person in that situation or not. You know, to be educated on those things from young age and to focus on, like, making sure that those experiences are, like, a dear, a dear to and a tailored to and to understood and empathised a bit more and able for the, your peers to understand that and that would be so much important because then, it, like, if your peers understood a bit more, then I guess you would feel less anxious and concerned because you're not so worried about them seeing you for being different or neurodivergent. Yeah. And, yeah. So it's for it to be an accepted difference, an accepted neurocultural difference rather than this perpetual failing um, 
that certainly followed me through my academic life, through my um, working life. You know, it's it's an internalised sense of, oh, if I could just do things this way, I would be this. If I could just do things that way, I'd be better at that. And it's not necessarily how people perceive me, but it's how I always perceive myself. And it's because of this constant message that if you tried harder if you did things better if you were more organized if you were less focused on this thing instead of that thing or if you could just let go of the thing that you're so passionate about um, and find more time for whatever the thing is that your manager boss teacher whatever wants you to do you would you would just soar in this area like well yeah actually now I am in a position where I am basically living and breathing the thing I'm passionate about. And thank goodness I am because it it nourishes me. And that as an occupational therapist just makes me realise how important the monotropic interests and hyperfocus is to autistic people for our own well-being. So it's not mindfulness, it's mind empty of everything else and mindful of the thing that I need to be and want to be full of, which is for me, it's learning about autism, it's talking to autism autistic people it's being with autistic children ah so on the topic of occupational therapy can you like give a definition to what occupational therapy you tailor in and what are the things you tend to do with the field of work that you do so um that's occupational therapists worst nightmare is to have to come up with a definition of what we do yeah because it's so different all over the different age ranges and across the lifespan um it's a bit like asking a doctor so what do you do as a doctor and then they'd go oh I'm a doctor of this and you'd go all right and you wouldn't really then you'd just go okay that's fine but um for a children's occupational therapist for me I trained as as a general occupational therapist because all occupational therapists are and we train to look at occupation not at sensory not at moving and handling not at one thing or another it is very much at the person and what what occupation is meaning to them so for a child it's what are the jobs that that person has to do and want to do in their life now the shift as an autistic neurodivergent affirming occupational therapist is instead of me going here's my autistic child that I have been asked to work with they need to go to school they need to get dressed they need to help tidy up they need to do all these sorts of things that we expect a child of that age and that developmental stage to do and I am going to teach the parents teach the school and provide very strict guidance to that child as as to how they're going to learn those skills and do them and then I end up with a really miserable child instead of that I am very much asking what is important to that child is it the tidying stuff up is it the going into assembly or is it them learning about I don't know whatever their topic is that day is it them being able to cope with playing with their peers in the playground so what do I need to do to make that an environment that they can thrive in and that is very much the crux of my work it is adapting advocating and training people and helping people adapt environments so that autistic people can thrive in them and in terms of one-to-one with that autistic person it's about them learning how to advocate for themselves so that they can ask for those adaptations if they need them understand what it is they need 
understand their identity, understand their occupational needs, and that they have a right to choose their occupational needs based on their autistic identity, not what everybody else wants of them. And I think that's such a huge battle when you're a child because everybody has an idea of what they want from you. Yeah, it's definitely one of those things that is definitely quite hard to define because when it was like you know thinking about like occupational therapy what like questions to ask you know as when I did an interview on speech language therapy the other week it seemed a bit more easier to define because you know like it's a field that it says quite in the question that it's a spot, uh, speech language therapy but with occupational therapy something that I had before with myself that and then fo- uh, focused on dyspraxia uh, when he was, didn't have the diagnosis of autism just yet, yet when he was a child. And it was like focused on those more motor, you know, skills mm-hmm. and those areas. And then from what you were saying then, it's like a lot more than what I understood of what oc- occupational therapy is and was and, you know, like so there is a lot more to it. And so, I, yeah, yeah to, get, to give you an idea, like in the past when um, I was in my first paediatrics job, I did a lot of fine motor work with people and a lot of gross motor work with people. So I would new treatment programs where I would expect them to be able to hold a pencil in a certain way and expect them to be able to write things in a certain way um and i'd be doing drills with them and um asking their teachers to do that with them as i have progressed and moved more into diagnostic assessment so i might have diagnosed people with um well, as part of a, a wider team but into autism diagnosis and dyspraxia which its official name is developmental coordination disorder assessments and done a lot more in terms of the research as to what makes an actual difference so I'm currently doing my master's in um, autism and associated developmental conditions Um, and it's really interesting the research about therapeutic input is very very rarely about doing this intensive one-to-one with a child it's about what is motivating for that child and what does the child want to change because if they don't want to change it whether that is because they physically don't like it psychologically don't like it or it's just not something they're motivated to do they're not going to do it whether that's handwriting getting themselves washed and dressed whatever it is they have to want to be able to do it and if they do then there's a way around it and your occupational therapist is your person to to work that out but it's about ultimately finding out what is important to that child and when it's an, an autistic child especially don't be trying to force them into something that they don't want to do because that is not neurodivergent affirming and actually it can be really deeply traumatizing yeah it seems like a lot of the culture and you know the practice of occupational therapy as well with uh, children is changing a lot at the minute and you know it's like only recently starting to uh, change and it's hurting me that it's becoming more neurodivergent affirming and understanding uh, people with multiple diagnoses is even though I assume that probably being a neurodivergent person is able to uh, to I understand things from a lived experience and then I would divergent affirmative way. I guess you're probably still quite a minority in your field of work and still I guess I imagine there's quite a lot of 
work on with that because like remember like I know from my personal experiences of uh, occupational therapy that it uh, therapist I had, which was over, I don't know, 12 years ago or something like that, maybe a bit longer, you know, like, didn't understand that when I got diagnosed after that, you know, with I'm of autistic, didn't understand how I guess I was autistic then. So uh, I say there's a lot that, I guess, is changing to understand multiple diagnoses and, you know, that you know, the co-occurring diagnosis is, I guess, which from your mouth is interesting in exploring that, you know, comorbid uh, neurodivergent conditions. Yeah, I mean, unlike speech and language therapists, the yeah. community of, of children's occupational therapy, especially in the UK, is extremely small. So in the US, um, I think all schools have to have an assigned occupational therapist, but in the UK, that's not the case. So there's often very small community-based teams in statutory services like the NHS. Um, and then there'll be other sort of specialist teams in, in um, hospitals and other areas. So as a community, we're really small. And often when you have a very small community of therapists, it can take a big push to move people out of their comfort zone. And I think there is a lot of talk about neurodivergent affirming practice there's a lot of people saying that they want to make moves to co-production with neurodivergent people and um, understanding much more about what autistic children and ADHD and dyspraxic children really want but as a parent as well as a neurodivergent autistic person myself it's not moving quickly enough and one of the sort of discomforts I have in my profession is we don't shout out enough and we don't kick up enough of a fuss as a profession. And I would love to see us be better at calling out ableist practices and really being critical of, of our own practice to see how we can improve it all the time to meet the needs of the contemporary population, not the population that we got trained with in a textbook that was written 30 years ago. And I feel like that that's something we really need to work on. As you did say from the community of uh, occupational therapists as to like speech language, you know, like there's a lot, it's a lot more smaller, as you were saying, that there's um, as many people working in this field. And I assume that, I guess, for how many people who are getting diagnosed now, because like there's a lot more young kids who are getting diagnosed with it, like dyspraxia, dyslexia, you know, ADHD and autistic, with like multiple different conditions, with very motor, you know, uh, and sensory like autism and communication and such that would need support from occupational therapists. And they, from what speech and language therapy is, I guess in that occupational therapy like requires lot more in terms of understanding an autism, autistic, or neurodivergent person and, you know, really learning the details of what they need as a person. And I guess with, like, the services are quite small and narrow, then, you know, there's enough support in terms of how many people are in the field to actually get on and be able to move things forward. Because there's not enough people there. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also about the commissioning arrangements of what that service is designed to provide. So 
you know, there are a lot of amazing occupational therapists that work with children out there who want to do so much more and be able to invest so much more time in finding out what works for autistic kids, what works for ADHD kids, what doesn't work, what, you know, what people want. I mean, I would love to be an OT attached to each school. And I don't mean for handwriting and sensory circuits in the morning. I mean for really working with those schools on the ground to look at creating enabling environments for young people to really thrive in. But nobody is commissioning those services. And this is where it, it gets really stuck because you have people siloed into different teams of specialisms or different teams where they can only see a certain amount of people for a certain amount of time, or they can only provide like sensory training rather than holistic sensory support to an, um, a person's environment. And it's not enough because we're not as a profession and as, as health professions, we're not just the only people who are under and under a lot of pressure from our funding education you know most of our recommendations for young people and children go to education but we're expecting teachers and teaching staff to do a job that that is really hard to do if you give somebody a treatment plan for occupational therapy how do you expect them to know what to do with it without there being somebody there to model it especially when a lot of those strategies are to do with relational approaches so if you're not just focusing on handwriting fine motor skills and gross motor skills which a lot of autistic children don't need they need somebody to help them modify their environment emotionally unless you can show and be there with that educational professional to to see how you would embed that into a school day giving them a piece of paper with what you expect of them is not helpful because they've already got a million other pieces of paper from every yeah. professional that's been in from that for that young person yeah especially as you say if it's something on the lens of actually like just an environment and no way to make sure that the classroom and like lessons are actually to tailored to like all the people in the classroom and that ensure that child's needs are able to be met and as I say that needs to be like an impersonal thing with the child and be able to actually work in with the teachers or any like learning support staff in like the classroom or school to make sure that they know what they need to do. and I guess it's something that people in your profession feels that they need a lot more support when it comes from government and understanding from like whether it's like the those types of education to healthcare and make sure these things are linked more closely and so they're able to cooperate and not I guess overworked as I guess you probably find yourself that you know you're passionate and you you know you went to do so much for the people you work with and but I guess there's a lot of uh, you know like restrictions, limitations, because like you can only do so much as a person because I say that there was no dig and I guess that's why you guess your colleagues find as well. Eh? And with that sort of stuff, say so it's a lot hard to learn a bit more and understand a lot more of what the press needs to move on with. So what are you finding from people within your profession and stuff? Are the other things that they are looking to need improvement from in the the field of work to support, to actually improve the service and make sure it's working as the people in the profession need? Um, so that's a tricky 
tricky question yeah. really i don't know whether they're actively looking for it or whether i yeah. just see see it and think guys why 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 are we not doing this yeah and um think you know occupational therapy practitioners are employed by a range of different services across independent sectors education health social care um and self-employed practitioners so we don't have like a standardized CPD, which is continuing professional development, but we do have prerequisites from our registration body of, of things that we have to learn and have well, have to know and the standards we have to meet. I suppose what I would like to see is that those standards are much more social justice focused um, so that occupational therapists across all age areas across the lifespan really don't just have to be aware of their own biases but to be actively fighting those biases um you know it, it's being anti-racist being anti-sexist being anti-ableist actively in our practice and and not being afraid to do that and that can be a big leap for a lot of practitioners because it's it's not what our professional culture our professional culture is quite quiet and meek so for us to stand up and go you know what yeah it's okay for me to suggest this practice isn't quite the way I want it or to call out this consultant for using this language when referring to a person that's okay because I am standing up for the people I work with in the way that they need so it seems that what is needed from like that your community and the area of profession is to be able to have a space for more cooperation and get some more collaboration from people who are uh, other occupational therapists. So I guess there's more uh, a ability to know what things are needed to improve and I guess to be able to learn and listen from each other in terms of what things could be done better to support in people with, with different needs. And as I say, it's something important for you to like be able to address things from like, you know, social justice and as new words I've heard and disabled person that's something that you can speak of in as well as a parent from your own level lived experiences. And but it, as I say it's like a challenge with that, you know, like the sorts of people in your field that, you know, is so that, you know, like I guess with the restrictions that I guess people probably may find that there's not enough time and you guess with that you just need more people to be working in the field just to be able to have their time just to be able to have the space to have this time to work together and collaborate and speak on things so I'll say it's part of life yeah what you say like <laughs> is, yeah so one of the things that I think is really interesting though is that in our recent um you know lecture that was given at our um it's called the Elizabeth Elizabeth Casson uh, Memorial Lecture and we had another magnificent Welsh person who's an occupational therapist called Keir Harding who um he's a mental health occupational therapist um and he really set a, a very good bar for challenging toxic environments and ableist thinking and really challenging occupational therapists to consider their views on their client groups and if they that they hold those biases how are you going to challenge them within yourself and how does that affect your practice and that was so powerful because I think that's one of the first times I've really heard it as a profession um so 
it's not just me banging on about these things. It might just, it's, there's certainly a lot of me banging on about it from a, an autistic children's perspective, but the conversations are happening within our profession. And yeah. I think that's, that's a good indicator that things are changing in the right yeah. direction. And I guess like the important thing you want to see is get more people being interested in working in the field and like being it went into work in the field I'd say like being able to stress like uh toxic environments and ableist thinking would be quite important for that as I guess you would find it would be great to you know have more neurodivergent people who will got lived experiences like yourself and to be able to work in the field so they can understand what the uh, people that you're working with like through their own lived experiences and sample deepest thinking and so what so from that lecture what was like some of the points and the like kind of the message on the, the uh, toxic environment and ableist thinking well i think a lot of the discussions that happened from um that uh keynote speech and have continued to happen have been about occupational therapists looking at their own workplaces and how they are um enabled to thrive within their own workspaces so you know as as an autistic and adhd person who has worked in the NHS for a long time um, and worked in private settings. Healthcare is a tough gig when you're neurodivergent. It is not an easy place. Um, there are plenty of, of opportunities where lots of your skills can thrive, but there's also lots of opportunities for you to feel like you're not doing things the way that, that people want you to do them. So that can has and has in the past led to bullying and those sort of institutionalised toxic environments. Um, but also this idea of, of being able to really reflect on the service you provide and if you're having these discussions about oh that that person's come to my service and well they just don't fit what we have to offer you know what does that actually mean and when we talk about children's mental health and, and autism and ADHD and neurodivergency yeah. a lot of the experiences and OTs do work in in children's mental health a lot of the experiences parents have is that their children don't fit the service not the service doesn't fit their child they're being told that it's their child that doesn't fit the service um so the fact that we are being encouraged to question these things not just question them but to actually make a real change and um, i am hoping that my colleagues and peers feel a real increased sense of bravery and that the rest of us have each other's backs to make changes about these kinds of practices yeah just a bit slow coming yeah as you said like with a point that you know, it's about, as you said, like, in so that the service fits the child, as you said, that, you know, like, kind of relates to your experiences with, like, your oh, uh, neurodivergent child when they were in, uh, like, talking therapies and therapies for their mental health and, as I said, those therapies they had negative experiences with. And what, and from, like, I guess, your experiences as a parent, would you say are those things that, what would, you know, like, fit, what things have, like, fitted to your children and worked, worked for them? And what type of things, like, how do you, would, would you like to see, like, mental health services or any type of services that support your children to be improved or meeting needs? So, what you said earlier about 
called yeah. exothymia. Um, and I don't know if you're aware of, of interception as a concept. It's quite new in the sensory world. So this understanding of what's going on inside your body and those sensations of inside your body um, and how they're linked yeah. to understanding emotions. You know, for me, if my children had gone to a service that had enabled them to understand the language of their emotions um, and not just my children, for me, when I was younger yeah. and, and I needed that kind of support, n- nobody ever decoded that for me. So I carried it as a burden. And a lot of autistic people need support decoding the things that are tricky around them. And once they have decoded it, be that an emotion, be that a, a communication strategy, be that an executive function task, we're often amazing at it because we've worked out the pattern. We know how to recognize it and we can work with that because we are pattern recognizers. But if you are left with no key to decode those patterns because you're missing parts of the code, which are for a lot of autistic kids, the ability to understand what's going on inside their bodies and name it and relate that to an emotion. How are you going to tell someone you're anxious? How are you going to say that thing is making me anxious and I would like some support with that because actually probably being in the environment where you're being asked to tell somebody about it is making you anxious yeah as you said uh, it still feels practically like uh, like a recent concept i come across and i'd say there's like it's only like coming to more awareness within the community as of late you know with uh, interception and it's something that if it's only like now coming to the uh, autistic community like into like something that we talk about online and in online spaces well like now rather than a few years or you know back it's something I guess that it's still a lot for time for where are supporting autistic people and their parents to learn and understand the autistic person's needs uh you know like are still to learn about and understand properly and have the right information to understand that and as for like a, a parent what would you like give us some of the advice to understand understanding your autistic or neurodivergent child's needs so i suppose i would have liked and still like you know for a start that the practitioner that you go to listens to the experiences that you have as a family because when you go for mental health support as as with a child it isn't just that child on their own they exist in a co-occupational space so by that I mean they relate to the other people around them that's their parents their siblings their school staff so they don't just nobody does exist on their own but children especially are extremely dependent on other people so for our story, our experience and our narrative to be actually heard rather than reduced to, you can see it in somebody's eyes going, right, well, I've only got CBT to offer you or I've only got play therapy to offer you or, you know, they don't fit that category so I can't offer you that. Right, well, we haven't got anything that meets your needs. Off you go. Or, oh, your kid's crying because they're dysregulated because you've brought them out of their safe place to this strange building where they've either shut down or they're melting down. So they, they're a do not or did not or would not engage 
not could not engage because the situation has dysregulated them. So for somebody to have been able to see us with neurodivergent affirming glasses, that lens of, yeah, your kid's having a tough time and it's not just because they're autistic, it's because they're autistic in a world that is really hard to navigate and has been really hard for them to navigate since they've been born. No wonder they're so traumatised. Would have been so empowering. Ironically, it's empathy, isn't it? And they say that it's us that doesn't have the empathy, you know? (laughs) Rigidity and empathy coming from services is one of the biggest problems because they often aren't flexible and they aren't empathetic and yet we are the first people to be told that we aren't flexible or empathetic which is hilarious yeah like i think they're not like uh it's definitely rigidity and lack enough flexibility as i think it's like a lot harder then because most of the time for if you're autistic or have it just on leads or such and you know you're getting referred to any sort of therapy usually it tends to be like from a gp as it like tends to be like a gp referring you for or a diagnosis of any sort, or like actually preferring you for talking therapies or CPT, or maybe in some cases occupational therapy that you might be able to speak on in a minute. And I guess from that, it's the thing that if, like, if the GPs are, like, general practitioners, it's hard for them to understand specifically what are the services that an autistic person needs and what are the right trends that they need to be directed on because it's not like a specialty that they have to be able to understand the health needs or the well-being needs of an autistic person. And if they there isn't those connections and like the links to the sports and you know like an easily the array of getting support and nice and understandable of what services that would work for the autistic person, like at the point of and again going to your GP and getting your diagnosis then it's a lot harder for, you know, an autistic person or an autistic parent to actually get to those right services and get to them and get to them at the time that they need. It's it's even got an extra layer for children because education is always involved because of the statutory um, legislation around children needing to be in education yeah. at certain times. So often referrals will come from schools, they will come from nurseries. Um, and this is one of my bugbears, really, is that autistic autistic children are not referred for assessment until they're in crisis. So I'm not talking about the children who are presenting from very, very, very early on as clearly autistic. I mean, those kids that are slipping through the net. So the kids that are chatty, um, they might have a little bit of verbal delays with with their speech. They might show little quirky signs, um, but they slip through the net for whatever reason. And then it's maybe some people go, oh yeah, they're autistic, but you know, they're fine. Why would you label them? Why would you label them? And actually, it's too late by the time they get their diagnosis because all those bad things that could have happened in the environment have happened. And from, you know, mental health outcomes for autistic people, as I'm sure you're aware, are absolutely appalling. Suicidal um, intentions and acts are so high for autistic people and ADHD people. If you put 
the co-occurring of ADHD and autism together, it's even worse. And nobody is there saying, okay, what can we do to prevent this? Or instead they're going, oh, well, of course they're distressed, they're autistic and ADHD. It's like, no, those two things are very separate. We do not have to be distressed. We can thrive. You know, as, as Luke Bearden says, we can have our autopia where things actually work really well for us. We just need to give ourselves permission and for the professionals that are involved that have all this power to give us permission to make that happen. Yeah, I was like, you know, like, hey, I'll just like listen down now and talking about like the state of things in the NHS. And I guess it's the thing that if like you got so many different, you know, roles and hurdles, sh- jump for one, so many different ways of blocking people for the correct support. And as you say, you got like, you know, like the two separate things for a child, the autist, you know, when the autistic, you know, that they have to go deal with their education system and have system in path of diagnosis and then for an adult that sometimes it is easier or more like like likely to get support if they go private then there's lots of things that you know there's that guest class struggle in those services and you got got those things that if like this system isn't correctly designed to get there at the right time and kind of set out to, you know, for trauma of like children and young adults. And, you know, I say that is something that gets when you were like gold uh, it was me of hard harder to get support for yourself if it's your own mental health and service support like that i think that the systems are made up of individuals aren't they they're made up yeah. of individual practitioners and i think nobody comes to work to work with children well at least i hope they don't to make their lives miserable or yeah. make families lives miserable so what is the disconnect between what i have experienced as a parent and going through I mean I've been pushed to the point where I was and you know I can be at utter despair like depression anxiety that is so low that is so debilitating as a result of seeing my family in such pain and distress but also to have to fight constantly and this rhetoric around fighting constantly you hear it a lot from parents kids with additional needs and you think oh you know it's just and this is what you're taught by your peers when you go into working with young people it's like oh well that family you know she just bangs on she shouts the loudest she gets what she wants and it's not that at all as we are so used to not being listened to that it is a trauma response to immediately come at a situation with an expectation that it's going to be negative because that's the experiences we've had so for these systems if we could change the culture in terms of what the those individuals understand about what is autism because the GP that refers the person has probably been trained 20, 30 years ago and has a very old, outdated view of what autism is. I don't know about you, but I find if less people know an autistic person or have personal experience, they don't have that invested view. Yeah, and I guess it's like changing some of the maps and the frameworks about how you get support and what, like, I guess the guidance or, like, the I guess the method of getting support from the government to maybe look at how we can get more localised support or, I guess, working out how to, I guess, change the, like, routes to getting, uh, like, mental health support, you know, because, I'd say, when you get diagnosis and, like, 
there's so many different steps to get in the right services and then so with that service tailored to autistic people because I guess as like somebody who works in a profession and got children it's like something you probably find is quite middling I guess just needs to be you know cleaned out and you know made get more clear in its directions. It would be lovely if um, services were designed to meet the needs of people yeah. rather, rather than um, based on here's a pot of money what yeah. can we do with that pot of money but you know it's not my yeah I've, I, I've been in healthcare for a very long time and I know yeah. that it is such a complex situation and yeah. it's so political yeah that, that often practitioners have no um ability to have a say in how the the larger systems are designed they might have a smaller impact on systems but if that one-to-one interaction with the person you meet is positive then that is one less trauma that that family yeah. and that individual has been through. Yeah. And I don't think we can underestimate that because as autistics, as ADHD, as so many of our interactions are traumatic, that we forget to count them. Whereas the neurotypicals, they're like, oh, I went to see this doctor. He was awful with me. And whereas we're like, no, they're always like that with us. You know, we've just forgotten that we have a right to be spoken to like the valid individuals that we are. Um, yeah. And I have a right for my children not to be spoken about as broken and deficit ridden and a burden on society. You know, that's the kind of thing that starts for parents right from the beginning. So, of course, they're traumatised. So making those small changes is something every practitioner can do. It doesn't cost money. Yeah, and encouraging those small changes and any change possible that, that could make a small difference is quite important. And to actually, like, as I say, you're changing that culture and having the, those people in, in the professions like yourself are listened to. It. And, you know, it's advice, you know, like it's that thing that in the current state of things now that probably parents like yourself have been exhausted by the, the system. And, you know, like go, being like, I guess, what sometimes maybe a neurodivergent person that doesn't have like a neurodivergent child probably doesn't understand some of the... I guess exhaustion and I guess hard, like how hard sometimes it can be for a parent in, in terms of sometimes I guess the process of like advocating for support for your child and getting right support for your child can be quite exhausting and isolating and damaging on your own mental health and quite difficult for that and, and so the parent is supporting got the right information and education because I guess it's quite hard for parents to get the right support and information that they need. Absolutely and especially to get neurodivergent affirming support, support that isn't based on um, very outdated behavioral strategies that are very few and far between Um, and I run a parent support and youth group in the town that I live in and the number of exhausted burnt out parents because of course when you've got a neurodivergent child you're more than likely to have a neurodivergent parent at least one more more likely to have two Um, we like to flock together um, though they have to deal a with all that intervention from other people even though that's desperately what you are asking for and what you need but having those people talk at you about your situation or gaslight your situation or apply neurotypical lenses you know 
especially around things like emotional based school avoidance or um, emotional dysregulation in children. The first point of call is parent blaming. And the second point of call is always, well, what can we do to be a punitive measure to that child? Whereas we all know that autistic kids do very, very badly with punitive measures and behavioural strategies. So we are potentially traumatising those parents even more. And it is it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart as, as an occupational therapist, as a mum, but also to see my fellow neurokin in so much pain because yeah. we shouldn't have to be. And Rachel, what are, like, is there any, like, uh, resources or any forms of information for any and they would divert and parent of any uh, they would divert and person I like to find out more information and reliable information of how to support any would divert and child or any information that they could learn more about autism and they would divert and see what are the like resources or do you point somebody to Oh, there are some amazing things that have come out in the last year or so. And they, in fact, I've got goosebumps <laughs> just thinking about the amazing work that um, Andy Smith and Spectrum Gaming do. They're currently running a um, sort of autism, uh, introduction to autism um, online course that's thick, um, short sessions. Um, it's got, it is a fee. I think it's about £40 for the six sessions, but my goodness, it would be so worth it because it gives you the opportunity to hear autistic young people and children created content about what helps them in school, what helps them at home, how to manage emotional dysregulation. You know, this is what parents are asking for. They're asking for like their lives to just, to, to not not be not autistic for them to be just happy and okay and for things to be settled and that isn't a big ask for our young people you know I just want my children not to be miserable yeah and when you've seen your child miserable for so long that is is very very powerful and and actually hearing these autistic young people's voices in this created content is just so empowering. There's also um, an Australian charity called Reframing Autism who have a free online modular course um, as an introduction to autism, which is fantastic. Um, again, really sort of takes out the sting of, of language that you might not have heard before um, around neurodivergence and um, some of the terms that, you know, people just don't use outside the autistic community um things like monotropism <laughs> who's using that over in a in neurotypicalville no one because they can't concentrate on anything for long enough that's what it is um and then in terms of reading materials i would say definitely the autistic girls network has a fabulous resource on internalized presentations of autism so a lot of later diagnosed either young people who identify as female or who are born female may have an altered presentation of their autistic identity so they're not the 
textbook presentation. To see it all written down in the Autistic Girls Network white paper is just amazing because it can be so validating to read that. And I would say any of Luke Bearden's books on managing anxiety in autistic children and autistic young people, if anxiety is something that your young person's struggling with, it's a, a brilliant place to start. And in terms of visual content, have you heard of NeuroWild? Instagram and uh, Facebook artist. Um, she is a speech and language therapist, I, I believe, by profession, but their posts are so accessible, so informative, great for the forgiving nana and granddad who maybe don't understand autism or have a clue about what's going on, or, oh, you know, we'll just grow out of it, or you just need to be firmer with him. These kind of things, educating your community can be so empowering. You need your village of supporters and you also need to know who you need to avoid who's going to make it worse and being able to share these kind of resources is really helpful for families i was saying that lots of this would have you know like have no innovative resources and have having like a list of resources where you can learn more would have been great and helpful for me if i were like in a while after my own diagnosis when i was about 10 like the, like lack of having you know, um, amount of these like resources that would help her learn a bit more, and so like things you did feel about losing, and so that you know, like just to know where you can get information on reliable re- information resources can help a long way to understand your autistic, neurodivergent child, and even maybe if you find out you're autistic yourself, you know, as a parent, you uh, like I could see that you said online about. Like your child has additional needs, and you know, has had negative experience in the mainstream school system, and you know, is in a like special school. And so, can you explain, like, what some of the differences are, and like, and the benefits of like a special school education, and what were the challenges? you found of uh, mainstream school education for your child? Oh, wow. Right. So this is another thing that I started out so naive. Um, And in my early years as a children's occupational therapist, you know, there's this idea that your kid is going to go to special school and everything's going to be great. It's, you know, they're going to cater for all their needs um, and they'll be just fine. It was only when my own child began to struggle in the mainstream setting and that was very much to do around not coping with the environment not coping with the way that other people were communicating with him and listening to his communication um which triggered basically like a ptsd so he then became so unable to access the mainstream environment that he needed a special school to meet his sensory needs um and to meet his anxiety needs now that's quite niche because because he doesn't have a formal learning disability that means that a lot of autistic autistic specialist schools wouldn't take him because they will often only take young people with a learning disability and autism um so where do you then you know where do you find a space for your child who is you know on paper and i hate this term but academically bright yeah but, but who has this massive barrier to learning because the world around them is so upsetting and they can't verbalize or communicate that to you in a oh and you know what mommy i'm having a really bad day today this uh this 
person's not listening to me the way I want or this light's too bright. He can't do that. He's too dysregulated. So finding a a specialist setting that could meet all of his needs has been incredibly challenging. And I'm hoping that we've got it right. But he's only been there a few few months. People often talk about being educated out of school as the gold standard for anxious autistic young people. I think it is so individual for each young person, but also their parents, because, you know, I, as an autistic person, ADHD person, need to not be in the house all the time being responsible for my child's education. With the best will in the world, I just can't do that. And I know that my partner can't do that either. We know that he needs to be in a place that can meet his needs. When you have an education healthcare plan, it's again often touted as the thing that is going to fix all your problems because there's a statutory and legal obligation for your local authority to meet what is in that plan. And I have some amazing recommendations from some amazing therapists, including somebody who was on your show, Emily Price, Emily Lee's fabulous therapist, who has basically created the most wonderful Uh, recommendations for one of my children finding somewhere that could meet those needs that those recommendations are in I had to do myself as a parent so in other places usually it's your local authority that would go and find that I had to search every single special school within an hour and a half radius of my my home and it's only because I know the education systems and I know what I'm asking and I know what I'm looking for that I managed to do that and work out which ones would work potentially and which ones wouldn't I was in a very very privileged position to do that. I don't think many parents would take that on in the same way. And I certainly couldn't advocate for many parents to take that on because it nearly finished me off the stress of that. So when we talk about specialist versus mainstream, it's never as simple as this is the school that's going to meet all your needs. This one isn't because, you know, as we've said before, these schools are made up of individuals and a lot of our autistic kids need relational safety. So they need need relationships to form the environment, not just the bricks and mortar, not just the therapies that are coming in. They need those key safe relationships to build everything else from. As you saying with that relational safety, yeah, that's a big thing. As like you need to have like people you can trust to talk to if you got any problems and you need any extra support or whatever you need to like if your child was upset or having a bit of a bad day or needs a bit more like support and advice and you like you went to that like him to be in a school that you can ask for that and get that and be able to know they can trust and feel they can tell a member staff that. So that's kind of really important thing. Like for an autistic person or for some autistic people in schools where, you know, like they can be quite a lot bigger now these days. You know, the high schools like can be quite like 800 old kids there, you know, like for, you know, like an autistic person, probably like your son, you know, that was must be like an overwhelming environment. And with, like, his peers might not understand his needs. And as you say that, with him, like, having, like, what was, like, PTSD-type experience, it kind of tells how severe things can get for an autistic person in school that doesn't go right and how severe it is. Because some people might not think that, you know, a young person's mental health can be that severe and severely affected by school. Yeah, and that is something that we did come up against trying to get support for him from our local mental health service you know there was a a bit of a rhetoric around well of course he's distressed he's autistic or it's behavioral god knows what 
it's behavioural is ever supposed to mean. You know, what what isn't a behaviour? It took extra advocating from me to be able to say, no, this anxiety was not there and now it is there. And here are the precipitating factors that have caused this issue. If this was any other child without a diagnosis, you would be taking this very seriously. But because you've assumed he's autistic, therefore he will and it must be experiencing anxiety it's acceptable but it absolutely isn't and it stuff like that is for me a real indicator of, of how autistic people end up with such terrible mental health outcomes and such yeah. terrible life outcomes because this is how we're treated from the beginning seemed like excuse and uh, you know mm. like they see us a way of pressing it off and not doing anything about it and then as you said for like when you know like you, you were trying to get like an alternative education from the mainstream for your child, then if amongst all that, as taking the resources would be quite hard to access for like a parent who might but not had the support yard from somebody else, creators, Emily Price, who was able to, you know, resource the right information and education resources that would work for your child and as I said that with uh, some of the specialist education tends to be tailored around those with learning disabilities that may not be as academically tailored and you know like giving the best out of what somebody could get like in the university education or like looking at advanced things, then I guess it can be quite hard getting the like the higher education that would meet your like challenge your child right enough, you know, give him the opportunities that he deserves and has the right to. And I guess that there's a lot of uh, inequalities in education that prevents those things. Absolutely. And most of the individuals involved in our family's care have not been actively obnoxious or actively seemingly deliberately not wanting the best or unpleasant, actively unpleasant to be around when we've sought their support. They've all tried their best with what they've got. It's just they didn't know what to do because they hadn't got the right understanding of what this little person needed. That's for so many different reasons. But he is a my child is a very good example of how trying to put outdated behavioural strategies onto a young person gives a very traumatising outcome. And, you know, we see it all over social media stories. Heidi Mavia um, talks about it a lot. Um, she's got a book your child is not broken any of the the groups that talk about emotional based school avoidance you know you will see this trail of children that have been broken by a system that was made up of very well-meaning practitioners and that's that's what i'm I suppose I mean by making a change one person at a time, making it at an individual level, because if you don't, it's those individual relationships that don't change. Yeah. And like, like I know you do uh, such training as, like, if when you looked up on your website into the big research, I think you do a training called Sensing and Sewers Training. If and some of the different trainings you will like go reference on your website. I do. So my sunshine and showers training was part of a Health Education England bid. One of my colleagues in my previous job looking to support early years professionals to know more about how to support neurodivergent early years children. So often naught to five year olds 
um, don't have a diagnosis of anything yet. They will go to mainstream primary schools. They'll go to mainstream settings. People will be picking up that maybe they have speech delays, maybe they have interaction differences. A lot of what we were hearing from the practitioner community out there in, in early years was that they just did not know how to support these children and their families if there was a suspected undiagnosed condition that would eventually be like a, a an autism diagnosis or an ADHD diagnosis or a DCD diagnosis. It is one of many sort of side hustles that I do is involved in basically trying to empower the, the community throughout the whole of young people services. So for this, it was teachers, it was GPs, it was nursery workers, it was school staff, early help workers. So we had people from all different areas come to these trainings to basically learn about the language of neurodivergence and neurodiversity and how to respect that little person that is in front of you rather than necessarily start to change them. I think a lot of interventions in the past are just about what can we do to change and what can lead to big mismatches in emotional regulation and frustration. And we're not saying that there aren't things that can be done to support language development. Basic things like play styles, you know, from an occupational therapy point of view, that's something that's been focused on a lot. What is functional play? And autistic children have their own style of play and actually it's appropriate and functional for that autistic person. You would not believe what a big eye-opener that is to many early years practitioners and other people who work with under fives because they've never had the permission to see that play as valid. They've never had the permission to see that child as not broken and not disordered. So a lot of our work was about that and a lot of the work I do independently is about helping other professionals in education and healthcare. And I think I'm going to go and speak to uh, a load of music teachers at the Royal Northern College of Music in September, basically about reframing their view on this autistic person in front of them as a valid individual who doesn't need your interventions. They need your time and your relationship. I guess this is one of those things you must quite enjoy from being able to do in your job, you know, like, and find there's quite something that you get proud of to be able to do it because um, I guess you can have quite a considerable impact on the you know like the people who are in always like nurseries, uh, play schools and presses, as I say, with the earlier it's of under fives, and that would much have an impact on those children's lives just by having that you know understanding you know from those you know, making those changes are and as I say, when you're speaking to music teachers then later on in this year and I guess guess it's stuff like that can be great off like providing some sort of steps for change. It's it's absolutely the, the thing that keeps me going really you know in the times when I can't do um the things that I want to do because of the restrictions in my service um I suppose that the advocacy role although it might not seem like traditional occupational therapy and that I'm not doing handwriting drills or throwing people over gym balls or putting them in a sensory gym actually for me is much more about enabling occupations in my practice because I'm enabling environments that people can thrive in and that is exactly what I see working in autistic people's lives. You create 
a situation somebody can thrive and they do it on their own. They don't need me to do sessions of therapy with them. They need the, the space and the opportunity to be able to thrive. And if I can provide that, then I've done my job. I see, and it's a great thing that you're able to do advocacy on top of the uh work they already do and provide these tra- uh, training sessions because I say you know we, it's great that you can do uh, you know the day-to-day role of occupational therapy but also it can provide such great impact that you can use your skills as an occupational therapist your lived experiences as new would divergent person to help other teachers and practitioners to be able to understand more about how how best to re- use yeah kind of like use our skills of supporting people who have additional needs for them to be able to do that in education and sets. Yeah, I mean that that is definitely the the bit of my job that I feel makes a, a big difference, and certainly the feedback I get from parents being able to support that family environment. Um, you know, even just being given the permission and the space to see your child as the amazing young person that they are, rather than the set of terrible things that they came with on the referral, all these things they can't do, you know, and this is where the Sunshine and Showers title came from, actually, you know, yeah, your life isn't all sunshine, but it's not all showers either, you know, family lives are by their very nature up and down, autistic family lives are by their very nature up and down, we're all learning from each other, that relationship that co-occupational relationship and co-regulation relationship is is such a huge part of of being a good parent and that's one of the things that I really love to help support people with as well as a neurodivergent person working as an occupational therapist there's definitely been a bit of a roller coaster of trying to see the positive of myself but I think that is about a lifetime of internalized ableism and internalized disappointment in myself because I wasn't diagnosed until I was 42 so you know, if you cr- if you constantly think you're not doing what everyone else is doing and that that's a bad thing, you're not going to feel great about it. But as I've as I have matured in my practice, and certainly when I became a parent and started to see the impacts of approaches on families of kids with additional needs, I actually started to to think, well, no, neurodivergent people have a huge amount to offer every working area. And yes, somebody's productivity might look very different as a disabled neurodivergent person to a non-disabled, non-neurodivergent person. But actually, the skills that I bring to the table are a huge amount of passion, a huge amount of knowledge, absolutely never letting go of something when it is crucially important and being able to put the voice and experience of that autistic family right at the heart of everything that I do so that they can do the things that they want and need to do because I see how important that is for their well-being and I can hear what they're saying and if I don't get it right that I'm open to listening to what they're saying rather than just dismissing it as oh you know they're just neurodivergent they're just autistic I don't want to hear that I want to hear their lived experience and how that makes a difference to my practice. How do you think uh, being a divergent, autistic, dyspraxic, ADHD and dyslexic affect yourself or your traits and your experiences of those conditions? <laughs> um, so because I have these multiple different um, 
labels of, of differences, you know, the di <laughs> the dyslexia, the dyspraxia, the ADHD, the autism, and, you know, I'm quite an anxious person as well. So that sits sits in there as well. It plays havoc with my executive function. I'm not going to lie. I think uh, if I had better executive function, I would probably be an amazing um, independent practitioner. But the thought of filling out tax returns absolutely terrifies me. So I very much veer away from, from having to do that. Not tax evasion, just just uh, <laughs> just kind of doing things from a voluntary perspective rather than paid perspective, because it is literally that it stops me in my tracks the thought of having to have additional paperwork in my life and I know that is to do with my organization skills but similarly the passion that I have from my autism and from my ADHD means that I'm running the only group for autistic and ADHD children in my town and it's got amazing feedback from parents and I've got some amazing volunteer partners. So now I know where my strengths are. I can ask other people to help with the other bits. It's just being able to be strong enough to know that, need to, to be able to let that go and go, do you know what? I, I know I can't do the, everything and that's all right. But I never had that role model of a neurodivergent role model to be able to say, it's okay not to be able to do everything. It's okay yeah. to be autonomous over independent. Yeah, you seem to work to a lot of things yourself and done a lot of guess you know like guess probably been late diagnosed you've probably found ways of being a resilient and all learned your own skills and you know methods of how to do things and how to manage yourself and I guess of finding your own ways of how to keep yourself up like even with executive dysfunction enough how to mo manage your life in a way that it works quite well now I guess it kind of helps with your job that you've kind of work, worked on things for your life for yourself I guess it is important to acknowledge the toll that it takes on yeah. you as a neurodivergent person as well and that we're not just these resilient armored battleproof people yeah. that can just take hit after hit after hit the number of times i have burnt out i have lost count of and the amount of time it takes to reset from that burnout is huge it's debilitating and horrible but i like to hope that as i get older i get a bit more wise about what works for me and what doesn't work for me this sort of drive for justice about autistic young people for me is is pervasive I cannot let it go and although it will burn me out I also know it's incredibly important and I would sacrifice my burnout to make that difference every single time that's if you know if people talk about superpowers that's the superpower my neurodivergence gives me unfortunately yeah. it does come at a price but I know that price at the moment is worth it just as a as a slightly last point to how it affects your work and personally ADHD and autism I think when you are very passionate about something can feel like two competing issues having a fight in your brain all the time you know the up and down of ADHD the wanting to to take something and run with it till it's you've got that big dopamine hit but your autistic need for certainty and the same can be very challenging at times and very difficult so I am a very chaotic person but I hate chaos which thank god you can't see my death because it is um it oh yeah now I'm actually looking at it I'm, I'm feeling the shame but I know exactly where everything is on it. And if somebody else moved it, it would send me into a meltdown. But I think that's a pretty good metaphor for my brain, really. If something gets pushed out, it's too much. But 
most of the time I know where everything is and, and that's what I need to, to thrive. Finding those strategies to help you to keep your table tidy is, is a really important part of keeping yourself well. Is there anywhere like you would want to promote or say where people can find your work or follow you on social media? So if you're feeling brave, um, you could come onto Twitter and social and meet me on social media. So I am on Holly the OT. I tend to be very open and I've been called a few things, but you know, I'm, I'm I think formidable, uh, the professional Marmite thing. I think um, I've had people from Cam's talking about uh, how controversial I am because I've I've posted about issues on my Twitter page about what my children have experienced but you know that's what it is I am very honest I'm honest yeah. about the good stuff I'm honest about the challenges uh, thank you again for listening to this episode of the new Ca- new rainbow cast with me autistically are and we hope you enjoyed this episode with Holly Speaker. And thanks again to her. And thanks again for listening and subscribing to the podcast. On whatever platform you're listening to the podcast, whether you're listening on Apple Podcasts or any other podcasting platform that allows you to review the podcast, please consider rating the podcast and giving it five stars and a positive review if you enjoyed it, that is. And also considering sharing these podcast episodes with anyone that you think would enjoy this listener and get encouraged people to subscribe and to listen along to the podcast. And reminding you, if you ever want to get in touch to the podcast, you can uh, on Twitter at New Rainbow UK, on uh, other social media platforms, it's at New Rainbow Project. And if you want to email me, you can email oh, uh, New Rainbow at uh, New Rainbow Project. And thanks you again for listening. And I don't know who's on it here next week. Uh, Still got some recording and booking to do. And so hopefully you can enjoy that. eh? Any future episodes coming up. And as I say, if you want to get get in touch with any ideas, any guests that you want to uh, consider coming on, or any questions they would like to me to ask in a segment or section of the podcast so so thanks again hope you enjoyed this one